Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome two executives from Cytokinetics, Robert Blum, President and CEO, and Fadi Malik, EVP of R&D. Great to have you on today. Thank nice you. To be here. Robert, we'll start with you. Would love to understand the arc of your career, what got you interested into biotech, and how you got to where you are today. So thank you. I got into biotech somewhat early in the infancy of this industry. I'm around for a while. I did my original academic training in biology and economics and had a thirst for new technologies and innovation around the time that the biotechnology industry was first getting its legs here in the San Francisco Bay Area, South San Francisco being the birth of biotechnology. And I thought how wonderful that one could combine a love for science and innovation as an entrepreneur in a space that could translate into benefits for humanity. And I was fortunate to be inspired by people like Bob Swanson, the founder of Genentech, who became, for me, over 40 years ago, a mentor as I embarked on a professional career in life sciences. Back then, we referred to biotechnology as genetic engineering and recombinant DNA technologies that could give rise to new medicines. And frankly, we're moving in many different directions. I was fortunate to find a direction and a purpose in cardiology as I was then a student at Stanford University and did internships at various large pharmaceutical and smaller biopharmaceutical companies and the through line or thread there was for me new cardiovascular medicine so this goes back to 1982 and over the course of now an arc of over 40 years i've been fortunate to be involved in many different innovations in cardiology from the drug and therapeutic side as i was firstly involved in clinical research and business planning as a student and then my first jobs were in sales, sales management, sales training, pharmaceutical marketing, pharmaceutical business development, before going back to graduate school, getting an MBA, but knowing I wanted to then transfer that early knowledge into a more entrepreneurial career. So I was involved in the early days in a company called Core Therapeutics, where I was responsible for matters associated with business development and planning and commercial development and planning, leading to the launch of a new cardiovascular medicine arising from an area of biology that we pioneered. And then upon successfully commercializing that medicine, it was my privilege to join up with a team of academic founders who were looking to launch this company and in that way, my initial responsibilities were, again, business development, finance, commercial development, planning, 
ultimately taking leadership for other functions here at Sato Kinetics, starting in 1998 and becoming CEO in 2007. And I've been fortunate to lead this company as CEO since 2007. So that's a long-winded way of describing a career that's been incredibly gratifying and fulfilling, but always with roots in new biologies that could translate into potential new cardiovascular medicines. Thanks, Robert, for that background. Fatty, over to you, please. Well, thanks for having us, Raul. I came at this with very similar motivations to what Robert just articulated. I just went about it in a different way. I was, from the earliest days, even as a high school student, interested in the intersection of science and medicine and patients, sort of inspired by a physician that I worked with one summer at UCSF and began to walk down that road in college and ultimately in medical school doing a combined MD-PhD and basic research in the area of motor proteins with a person who turned out to be one of the founders of this company, although I didn't know it at the time, and continued my medical training with a internship and residency in medicine, a fellowship in cardiology and interventional cardiology, and was about to embark on a traditional and academic career, like still with the focus of thinking about how do we translate basic scientific observations, basic science from the bench to the bedside, when cytokinetics was in its infancy, and the founders were looking to hire their first employee, and a chance lunch between myself and my former mentor, where he was describing what they were doing. And as he saw me asking more questions about it, the light bulb in his head went off and saying, you think you'd really be interested in doing this? We're looking to hire our first employee. And after a couple of weeks of back and forth, I became the first employee of Cytokinetics, the first scientist to join the company. I had to tell some of my other mentors that the academic path I was nearly to begin on, I was making a right angle turn and to join the startup, but it's been a wonderful journey since. I managed to keep my head in medicine and practice interventional cardiology for about 20 years. As a scientist here, I conceived of and led the development of our muscle biology programs and my responsibilities like Robert's grew over time here at Cytokinetics and about 10 years ago, I became the head of R&D here at Cytokinetics. Fatty's being a little bit modest, I'll toot his horn a little bit for him. Fatty is a brilliant physician scientist and as a cardiologist and with an expertise in the biochemistry and the biophysics of this biological space that we focused to, he's pioneered a vision around which we've been able to translate that into a portfolio of new medicines. And He's overseen the research and the development that produced the portfolio of investigational medicines that look to hold great promise for patients. So we've been following his lead scientifically and otherwise for all these many years, and it's been a great partnership. Wonderful. Thanks, Robert. Fatty, I'm curious, what was that transition like from medicine to biotech? And what advice would you provide folks to make perhaps their transition a bit easier? Well, when you're in training in medicine, you're very reactive. Patients are coming at you, you know, they come into the emergency room, all kinds of things happen during the course of the day. You may have picked a specialty that was sort of a proactive decision, but 
once you've done that, you know, you sort of walk along a road that's laid out for you. Eventually, you know where you'll go do your training and all the steps are kind of laid out in this career path. And the difference in coming to a company like this is that none of that is laid out for you. All kinds of things happen and they come at you, but you really have to think carefully about where you want to go. And fundamentally, it's a different mindset. You know, you come to work every day thinking about what is the future going to be. And it's a really exciting place to be in that context is trying to chart your own future, but it certainly has its challenges. Thanks. And Robert, a similar question. You've been CEO at Cytokinetics now for quite some time. Talk to us about what were perhaps some of the non-obvious learnings that back 16 plus years ago in terms of taking that CEO position for the first time and particularly the emotional aspects of being a CEO. Sure. So I'll say that I've tried to be a good student of this industry dating back to its origins, as I mentioned previously. And we put into practice at Cytokinetics many of those things that I thought were attributes or characteristics of the best performing companies. Things like focus to an area of biology as opposed to an enabling technology platform or otherwise chemistry or other technologies that could quickly become commoditized. And we focused to biology translating to pharmacology from the very beginning. And there are other things that I thought should be engineered into the company's fabric, things associated with culture, as an example, and longevity of commitment and continuity of team. Some of those things were obvious to us from the beginning and quite unconventional, despite what one might say are the demonstrated evidence that that's what contributes to successful companies. But I don't think that entrepreneurs and venture capitalists always get that right. But those were things that I think were designed into the company from the beginning, but also a much more well-articulated and authentic commitment to certain values, things that we've practiced here from the beginning, promoting from within and providing an opportunity for people to be their best personal and professional selves. The things that I learned as I became CEO were that as a young CEO, one shouldn't always come into the room with a more prescriptive approach to problem solving. And very often, it's the CEO's job not so much to have the answers, but to make sure they're enabled through the course of conversation and to inject more criticality of thought and dynamic tension into the room. And that the best ideas come oftentimes from the people who might otherwise not feel that they can be as vocal. And it's incumbent upon the leadership to tease those out of people, sometimes those people being more proximal to the problem and not necessarily in the boardroom. And I think as I became more comfortable in my own shoes as a CEO, I learned the power of humility and compassion in ways that I think have enabled Cytokinetics to be a better company under not just my leadership, but distributed leadership across a wider array of functional team leaders. Thanks, Robert. This is to both of you. There's inherent risk in 
everything we do within biotech. You know, only one out of 7,000 drugs that are being worked on actually make it to market. And you both have been working at Cytokinetic for quite some time. For folks that perhaps are newer to the industry and are not used to that amount of failure, I'm curious how you have developed a culture within cytokinetics to perhaps embrace some of the learnings that come along with failure and what advice you would provide other leaders that are listening. I come from a family of non-scientists, right? So they really don't understand. You tell them I've been working on this for 25 years and we've pioneered science and usually the question is, well, what do you guys sell these days? And as you know, that's just not the way it works. In particular, for companies like ours that not only are developing drugs, but are pioneering a new area of biology that is being applied to medicine, you know, namely the uh, sarcomere, this fundamental unit of muscle contractility, it can take a long time. And what I tell people are two things. First of all, if we are successful, you know, our products will endure for decades. I mean, we take medicines today that were developed 50, 60, 70 years ago, And so our impacts are tremendous lasting longevity compared to many other things that are built into society. So that makes it at least knowing the challenges ahead, knowing that if you are successful, your impact really has decades of potential use across medicine. And the second point is that this is a journey and it's not just the destination, but the journey. And I said these words a couple of days ago at our 25th anniversary celebration here at Cytokinetics, which is that you have to enjoy the path that you take, the people that you work with, the things that you're working on, and derive satisfaction out of that, because not everyone is going to, as you said, be successful in ultimately achieving that very high hurdle of getting a new medicine to the market. I might add to that that you have to be, and this is often stated but seldom practiced, you have to be an active learner. It's inevitable that science will be humbling, and you'll learn things from your mistakes more often than from your successes. And at Cytokinetics, we've had our fair share of setbacks, but it's what we've done with those and how we've overcome them, the resilience, not just in continuing to fund a program, but for applying learnings to additional clinical trials as we do successive experiments that ultimately will serve I think the best reminder of what it takes to get a medicine across the finish line. We don't stop doing science when a drug candidate moves from preclinical research into clinical research. The clinical research experiments we do are larger, longer, more expensive, but they're experiments. They have hypotheses around which you have methods and you should constantly be assessing and evaluating those methods and what you're doing in the petri dish of human clinical research, much like you do in the laboratory. And I think cytokinetics has demonstrated that it can apply learnings in ways that can enable programs that others might have abandoned to still press forward and ultimately, as may represent innovations for patients. And Robert, you know, just on the point that we were talking about in terms of inherent risk, the biotech market has been on quite a ride over the last few years. And I'm curious now how the current capital market environment shapes the way that cytokinetics is operating. And if it's changed at all from, let's say, 2020, 2021, 
in terms of whether you're seeking more operational efficiencies, trying to keep fixed costs low, or anything that has been informed by the current markets? So these current markets, while potentially having more dramatic effect to more companies that were formed in recent years, are nothing new. If you've been around the industry, you've seen the pendulum swing back and forth multiple times. And I think we are to be reminded that too many companies get intoxicated with early and easy access to capital in ways that they get in front of themselves scientifically over their skis, so to speak. And when the tide retreats, they're left standing sometimes without their bathing suits on. And what I think we've learned over the course of a longer period in this industry is you always have to assume that there's going to be another period where capital will be difficult. And how you monetize your programs in ways that are non-equity capital dependent matter more than anything. How do you do business development transactions, royalty monetizations, or other things that can be enabling of a diversification of capital so as to be able to always ensure a strong balance sheet and a healthy cash runway? And I think those companies that have preceded cytokinetics or those companies that we admire most or those that have demonstrated the ability to do that, more often than not, they're biology-centric. More often than not, they're pioneering in the ways in which they do their research and not simply taking fast follower approaches. More often than not, they're focused in the ways of certain therapeutic areas, but not beyond their own ability to prosecute in those areas that they're focused on. And therefore, they can carve a path that's enabling of them to be succeeding in ways that allow them to control their own destiny. And I think that's what the shareholders and the equity capital markets also ultimately reward. Wonderful. Now, before we get into the work that you all are pursuing at Cytokinetics, would love if you could educate us on the current cardiovascular market and the overall landscape, how that's evolved over the last, let's say, decade or two, and where you think there still are lots of opportunities. Well, there have been a number of wonderful advancements in the area of cardiology over the past 25 years, but there are ebbs and flows in terms of the amount of innovation and attention to developing new medicines that are focused in cardiology. And 20 years ago, after we developed medicines for heart failure, like ACE inhibitors and spironolactone, mostly generic drugs that were found to be useful in heart failure, everyone left the field thinking that there was really no more opportunity, even despite the fact that the medical need in heart failure is as large or larger than we have for any of the cancers. If you look at the number of development programs in cancer versus heart failure, you could argue that the medical need is pretty similar, if not greater, in heart failure, even as a subsegment of cardiovascular disease. You know, they outnumber innovative programs, outnumber those in cardiology probably by 100 to 1. And so that sort of early success, if you will, people left the field and didn't really come back to it until maybe about a decade ago. And we're beginning to see, again, some attention turn to heart failure because it's one of the areas in medicine where there is a large unmet need. And by that, I don't mean that the unmet need is a big unmet need. It's that it's large. 
a large number of people with this problem and that truly are, you know, the mortality and morbidity rates exceed those of almost many of the diseases that we focus on, where somebody hospitalized with heart failure has a 50% five-year mortality. And as you know, the development of new therapies really takes almost like constant pressure. It's hard to leave the field and then come back and expect all of a sudden for everything to rise up again. So that's one of been the challenges in developing new medicines to treat cardiovascular disease, but there's tremendous amount of, of opportunity. Heart failure is one, atrial fibrillation is another. We have drugs for hypertension, but we still have lots of people with uncontrolled hypertension. And sometimes we blame the patients or we just say they don't take their medicines. On the other hand, you know, we don't really develop medicines that are easy for them to use or lack side effects. And so I think a lot of opportunity in this public health need to be able to pursue and eventually help lots of people. What's remarkable is that for all of the patients who are suffering from cardiovascular diseases, and that prevalence is increasing with the aging demographics, how few medicines actually work directly on the heart. And it wasn't until Fatty and his colleagues began identifying ways that we could develop new drug candidates that bind to the machinery of the heart that we were able to look for innovations that could modulate the performance of cardiac function. And that's what's so exciting about the promise of the work we're doing here. Great. And this question is coming from a position of naivete, but you know, historically running cardiovascular programs and clinical trials, so intensive. Are there any innovations that you've seen over the last couple of years to accelerate development of cardiovascular drugs? Well, we do, you know, require large trials often because the hurdles are very high in terms of the hurdles for approval, if you will, are to show difference in a objective measure of clinical need, whether it's hospitalization or mortality. Cardiology, they don't accept surrogates really very much, except maybe in the field of lipids and blood pressure. I think the pandemic taught us a lot about how we can maybe do clinical research in ways that are more flexible, potentially less expensive, and streamlined. The word pragmatic clinical trial often gets tossed around, but it really is potentially possible now to simplify the conduct of these trials in ways that make it easier to identify the patients, to get them in the trials, collect the data you need, and ultimately show whether the drug's effective or not. And I think we're still a long ways off from truly being able to implement that model, but I think the pandemic gave us a push in that direction. Great. So with that background now, would love to understand where cytokinetics is from a development perspective and what are some of the upcoming milestones that folks should be looking out for? We have a pipeline of programs five in number at various stages of clinical development and a research platform that delivered them into the clinic that we expect could deliver yet further and our vision 2025 foresees us having 10 such programs in various stages of development. But even more gratifying is the fact that we expect within the next year or two, at least one, if not two of those medicines will be available to patients. And we're gonna be one of those relative few companies that translate new science and potential new medicines to benefit patient care on a much broader scale. 
So we're building out the commercial infrastructure and other functional areas to support that transition. Foremost amongst the products around which we expect that could happen is an investigational medicine called Afficampton. That's the subject of a pivotal clinical trial that's due to read out later this year in Q4 of 2023. And maybe Fatty better suited to speak to what is the mechanism of that and how it may translate into patient benefit. Our most advanced program at the moment in the clinic and undergoing its pivotal phase three trial targets a disease called Swarbrick-Head hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And fundamentally, it's a genetic disease of the sarcomere. So the sarcomere is this fundamental unit of biology and muscle that creates contractility. The sarcomere shortens, muscle contracts. And inside the sarcomere are the proteins the motors, the roadways, the things that regulate the interaction between the motors and the roadways, so I call them the transmission, that you can modulate with small molecules that can be made into traditional medicines. So afficampton is such a potential medicine. It binds to the motor in the sarcomere, the cardiac sarcomere to be specific, and it reduces the number of active motors because in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the problem, the mutations generally create an overabundance of active motors. And so an over-contractile, hyper-contractile sarcomere causes the muscle to thicken and become stiffer, and it makes it harder for it to fill, but it has no problem contracting. In fact, it contracts maybe a little too much. And so this is a means of restoring the balance in the sarcomere to what's normal contractility. That medicine now is run through phase one, phase two, phase three. It's in the phase three trial with the intent of showing that it improves the exercise capacity, the functional capacity, and symptoms in patients that have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And their disease causes them to have a lot of the same symptoms that our heart failure patients do. They, you know, they get breathless with very modest activity. They can't climb stairs. They're limited in what they can do every day. They may become breathless, laying flat, and other things. And so, you know, we hope to show that this medicine improves those symptoms and, and increases their functional capacity and provides them a new targeted therapy for their disease. Thanks, Fatty. Before we let you both leave, wanted to ask you to reflect for a minute. And given all that you've experienced both personally and professionally in your lives, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing what you now know? So... I guess I might start by saying, find yourself more mentors along the way, people that you admire and you can learn from, people who take an interest in your professional development and who can impart their wisdom on you. There's so much now that can be learned from folks who have done well and done well, not professionally, but by the standards of mission and purpose and values. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to surround ourselves with a personal board of directors, if you will, people that have your interests in mind and who can coach and lead you to enable you to be better and better at what you do. Well, I echo what Robert said. I mean, when someone like me leaves the cocoon of the academic institution, you're used to having lots of mentors. I mean, 
you have lots of people that taught you how to practice medicine or they taught you how to do research. And you come to a, a smaller startup company, that whole support structure is not present, right? Because just by definition, there's so many fewer people here. So it's important to find those mentors that you can rely on. And I was lucky to have a few early in my career. You know, second is, is really clarity of purpose. I mean, we talked earlier about how long it can take to develop a new area of biology and to develop new medicines in that area. And so if you're going to do that, you really need to be super efficient in how you go about it and thinking, you know, every single thing that you do along the way is going to contribute to proving medicine is useful and trying to avoid doing the things that take away from that focus. And so I tell my younger self, focus on the things that really make the difference. Great. Well, on the point of finding mentors and surrounding yourself with the right people, really appreciate both of you joining today and for sharing a bit about your personal journey, but also the really important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Cytokinetics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time and showing the interest in what we're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.